Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener of the Native Seed Podcast. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Hello, welcome to the Native Seed Pod, Episode 4, Trusting in Abundance, Finding Your Regeneration Niche. We're launching here on the new moon in August of 2018. My name is Sarah, I'm the producer here of the Native Seed Pod, and I would like to extend a very warm welcome to all of you in joining our show. I'm here with our host, Melissa Nelson, who just spent amazing time with the beautiful Robin Kemmerer. Melissa, tell us what it was like to sit with your Anishinaabe sister, going back to your original instructions and really just, it seems like taking a deep dive into your Anishinaabe cultural teachings of seeds and so close to your own original territories. Uh, Miigwech, Sarah. Thank you for that. You know, it really was such a gift to spend that time with Robin on the beautiful shores of Cranberry Lake and Mohawk Territory. Uh, We were really close to the St. Lawrence Seaway up north of us, and that place is so important to our larger Anishinaabe Confederacy that we share. Robin, as a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, myself as a citizen of the Anishinaabe Ojibwe Nation at Turtle Mountain, and of course the Ottawa are the third tribe of our great Three Fires Confederacy that migrated from the East Coast down the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Great Lakes. So we are very close to our ancestral territory, and we really enjoyed spending that time listening to the hermit thrush and the other uh, beautiful birds in that native forest, and diving deep into our teachings about plants, and both from a Western science perspective and traditional ecological knowledge perspective. Robin has really been one of the architects of the traditional ecological knowledge movement in academia and universities, uh, in science institutions and associations. So she's been a great mentor, colleague, and friend uh, for many years. And to have that quality time together to talk about seeds was, was such a joy. Uh, We did really acknowledge as well that we were in uh, the great Haudenosaunee territory, uh, the Six Nations, the Iroquois Confederacy, and we sat under those majestic white pines, the Tree of Peace, to take shelter under that Tree of Peace and remember our kinship. So welcome to this uh, pollinated conversation, and we look forward to hearing back from you.
We are sitting under my favorite old pines looking out over this beautiful Adirondack Lake. This is our Cranberry Lake Biological Station where we run uh, summer uh, university programs with the belief that nature is the best teacher. So we bring our students here so they can be in the presence of this lake, this forest, and uh, it's a wonderful place to be. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for picking me up on the boat and welcoming me to this place where you're teaching your incredible work. If you could introduce yourself, that would be wonderful. Bonjour. Shabadaske gish kokwe na deshnakas. Bodwe wad mikwenda. Megaze do dem, minwamako do dem. My name in our Potawatomi language is Shabadaske gish kokwe, the light shining through sky woman. I'm a member of the Potawatomi nation of the Bear Clan and also of the Eagles. And I am so delighted that you are here. This place is really, you know, the home of my heart. And so to welcome a friend here is is wonderful. Um, I, I come here because I'm a professor of botany at the College of Environmental Science and Forestry a few hours down the road in Syracuse. And I'm also the director of the Center for Native Peoples in the Environment. And so this program of introducing students to traditional knowledge, to that notion of the land as teacher, uh, the plants and other beings that are around us, that we're here not to learn necessarily about the forest, but to learn from the forest. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. And what are the prominent tree species of this forest? Well, we're sitting here under the iconic white pines, who are, of course, the, the largest and oldest members of, of this forest. But we're really at that tension zone between the boreal forests. So we have balsam firs and red spruce and black spruce and hemlock, but we also um, are right at the edge of the sugar maple forest. So beech, birch, maple, along the shore here, we're looking out over uh, uh, paper birch, um, a remnant of the old days of fire over this landscape. So it's a very mixed biodiverse habitat. So welcome to our Native Seed Pod. It's a new podcast of the Cultural Conservancy and it was spawned in part by conversations with you and John Evans and some of your students when we were talking about traditional ecological knowledge and seeds and foods and restoration and really the need for more education about these issues of indigenous science. And we decided to focus really on plants and seeds and foods because it's so central to everybody, not just native peoples. And yet native peoples have a particular affinity and a unique relationship with plants. Could you say a little bit more about that in terms of the, the legacy of, of your people's relationship with plants or other native peoples of Turtle Island and why that's so important for us to remember today. Mm. You know, in, in Western thinking, in the scientific tradition in which I was educated later in life, um, uh, we think about plants as somewhat primitive, right? They're at the bottom of the hierarchy. But in so many indigenous traditions where we think not of hierarchy, but of, of the circle, the plants are really esteemed, um, really esteemed for so many reasons. I mean, after all, who can 
photosynthesize but them what take air light and water and make food <laughs> and make berries and Incredible. give yeah and give it away they make all the medicines they build the soil you know we look to them because of that understanding through indigenous science of that fact that our lives and most animal lives on Turtle Island are completely contingent on the life of these plants. So they're really revered for all of the gifts that, that they bear. We recognize them as, as the ones who take care of us, as the ones who heal us, as the ones who teach us. Um, they are our neighbors. And you know, another thing about them, because generosity and hospitality, always offering of food is so common in our cultures, the fact that plants are models of that kind of generosity and creativity, I think gives them that particular esteem as well. You know, I think about all those old stories that we share about how people used to be able to listen to the plants and the plants would tell people what their gifts were and how they were to be used, that the plants could tell people uh, a great deal. And science is certainly a, a good way to learn from the plants as well as those intuitive and ancestral ways. But you just have to be quiet and listen. They've, they've got so much wisdom. They definitely have their own languages, their own voices, their own vocabularies but many of us have kind of developed a tin ear, unfortunately, to hearing those more subtle voices and languages. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the plants have spoken most loudly to you or that you've heard most clearly? Are there any particular plants? How to choose, How to oh choose my goodness. The um, symphony. The really, really. You know, this time of year, because it's berry season in the Adirondacks, I would think about berries. Um, and the way that, that they speak of the gift, that, that they are providing for us with all these beautiful nuggets of sweetness, every one of them with a different flavor, every one of them with a different way of being. But I think there's, there's for me, nothing quicker to introduce me to a place than the taste of, of its berries. Um, so I, I would put berries as, as ones with a particularly lovely voice in, in, in this landscape. I concur, uh, being a berry lover myself. I mm -hmm. was just in North Dakota, as I mentioned, with the June berries. It was a very prolific year for them, and they were so ripe and delicious, and people were harvesting and sharing them and putting them in ice cream and their cereals and making pies, and mm. everywhere I went, people were talking about June berries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know who talks a lot about June berries here is the cedar wax wings. <laughs> I'm fine. My students were saying, well, how do you find them? And I said, oh, you just listen to the cedar waxwings, yes. who are, they're gluttons, aren't they? They're gluttons. Yeah, 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 but they'll tell you. June berries this way. <laughs> yeah, what are some other berries that are coming up here in this area? Raspberries, and this is really blueberry season. There are lots and lots of blueberries, or there were, uh, because the bears have been active. I was up picking in a favorite 
meadow and I did find a few little patches but most of the uh, the berry bushes showed signs of um, the bears activity of raking those berries off from the bushes and um, I'm sorry I didn't get to fill my basket as full but it makes me really happy <laughs> to know that the bears have been there and, and are have, eating well and are eating well are exactly eating well. exactly I know that in our language we Often the berries have a min in their in their name, and that relates often to this concept of of gift. And uh, for example, the, our strawberry, the odeamin, the mm. heart gift, mm -hmm. uh, the misquomin, the the red berry, the raspberry. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know you've looked into the language of that word a bit. Can you share a little bit more about what that means to you, or? What do you think it means for our people that they named berries with this very special word? Yeah, as I understand it, that word min and our word for these blueberries that are right down here on the shore by us is minan, um, that they are the gift. And to me that really shows that, that deep understanding of the plant's creativity, generosity and that the berries by their bright color right by their fragrances by the way they position themselves on the on the branches they are offered to us there's there's really nothing ambiguous about this this is for you melissa <laughs> um, thank you miigwech i will i will receive exactly and so they are i think in that way we know when, when we receive a gift, it makes us feel really grateful. Um, and those berries, I think, in that giving of that, that gift so freely, it's, there's no such thing as a free lunch, even a lunch of, of, of delicious blueberries on a, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, but they're asking something of us in return. They have, with evolutionary ingenuity, if you will, um, created something that's irresistible to us that we who can move can do what the still-rooted ones can't. We can carry their seeds to places that they cannot get. And, and so it's that beautiful symbiosis, that notion of the, the uh, reciprocity between the gift that they give us and that that gift comes with our responsibility to move them somewhere else. And, and happily we get to do that by eating them. <laughs> exactly. What, what an ingenious um, dispersal strategy to make yourself delicious. Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, it's such a beautiful offering and way to, like you say, embody generosity. And yet some seeds and some plants are very, very hidden and very, very hard to open up. We sit under this pine tree, and I live with many pines in California, Monterey pine, bishop pine, and many of them, their, their cones are so hard and so tight, they need extreme heat or even fire to pop them open so that those beautiful seeds can be released for a new generation. I would just love to hear from you, Dr. Kimberer, is such a wonderful botanist versed in both traditional ecological knowledge and scientific ecological knowledge. What do you think of this diversity of seed dispersal strategies that plants use and um, just some of the magic of them and some of the metaphor of them? It is 
remarkable when you look at a seed and you look at the way that that seed is perfectly designed to get it to where it needs to grow. Because plants make these seeds, yes, to send them off, but unless they land in the right place, um, that seed has been a gift for, for a hungry animal, perhaps, um, or for building the soil, but it's not going to yield a plant unless it lands in the right place. And so the plants that are around us here, the plants that are around everybody, have ingenious ways to get in the right place. Um, I'm thinking about uh, oh, a fish jumped, I think. <laughs> nice, nice. A lot of the, the plants here have a requirement to be in humus. They want to be in that, that bed of black organic matter. And uh, so how do they get buried? They're, if they're sitting right on the surface, they're going to get eaten by somebody. So the trillium, for example, the lilies that are in our, our woods here, um, are especially designed to attract ants. And the ants will take them and bury them in just the right depth. Um, and of course, ants create a little zone of, of fertility around them. And so they're burying the seeds in just the right place. But those seeds aren't ingested by the ants. Instead, on the outside of that seed, there's a little fat body called an eliosome, which is like catnip for ants. Um, and they'll, they'll, they, they carry those seeds underground and then chew that eliosome off. So they encounter um, ants as their farmers, as their, as their planters, to bring them to just the right place. Um, that's All, the trillium with the trillium. Yes, trillium. Oh, my favorites. The yeah. Little three petals and yes, it's yeah. a beautiful geometric plant. Oh, they are beautiful. They're mm. so beautiful. And it's not just the trillium, but the ginger and the trout lilies. A lot of those spring ephemerals have that same idea of, of getting ants to carry them to just the right place so that they're ready to come up next spring. You know, just down the path from here is another one of my favorite plants for thinking about seed dispersal. Do you know jewelweed? Mm -hmm. Also called touch-me-not. Beautiful. That wonderful medicine plant, that yes. antidote to poison ivy grows in these wet places. But it has this um, seed dispersal mechanism where, you know, if you touch those little seed pods, they explode in your hand and, and they can, you know, scatter out from the parent plants. But those seeds that pop like that are the orange flowers, the flowers that bees have come to visit. Um, and they have, they've been cross-pollinated. They have brand new genetic combinations to pop off hither and yon. But jewelweed also makes flowers that are tightly closed, that never open, that no bee can visit. And you think, what, why? Why would they do that? Um, they're self-pollinating. They're taking a combination of genes, like if it was good enough for my parents, it's good enough for me. <laughs> and those seeds don't explosively disperse. They fall right at the feet of the plant, as it were. So here's this brilliant plant kind of hedging its bets. I'm gonna mix up my genes and spend, send those off, but and that's good if the world changes, and the world's always changing.
Yes. Um, but if the world stays stable, I've also got a gene combination from my ancestors that works fine for this little patch of ground. Um, it's, it's this amazing adaptation to that dance between certainty and uncertainty. Yes to know that I'm always going to have a home. Um, it might be out there, right. in which case I'm prepared, and it might be right here. We were harvesting cattail the other day, and the students were having fun with all of the fluff flying off from those cattails across the marsh. So wind dispersal, right, is that powerful way that, that seeds get around. And it's just cotton, uh, carrying those seeds um, so far away, once it gets onto the upper air currents, who knows where they will end up. But they're hedging their bets too, because underground, right, they're making rhizomes and saying, well, we could, we could stay here. We could stay here and just reproduce this way, this in situ, right where my parents were. Right, right. And you know, it's, it's to me really interesting that within the discipline of forest ecology, let's say, when we look at why are pines here and why are birches there, for example, oftentimes we look at the adults to say, well, maybe it's the soil, um, maybe it's the, the aspect, the sunlight, whatever. We're trying to look at the world from the perspective of what that 200-year-old tree could tell us. But we have to go back to the time when that tree was born. And this is that concept of the regeneration niche, that instead of necessarily trying to interpret the world the way mature beings see it, we have to say, what was the world like that allowed you to get started right here? What was that match between seed dispersal ability and what the environment was offering? Because your seed had to fall in the right place in order for you to make a home. And so trying to understand the world makes you, in that way makes you think back to what is it that you needed when you were first beginning? And that may have much more to do with why you are standing here on this piney point and not over there in that valley. Um, it's because of what you needed to get started. And to me, that's a powerful idea for thinking about the assembly of natural communities um, and for thinking about human communities and social change. What is that, what is that regeneration niche? What are the conditions where an idea can grow? Uh, what are the conditions that, that will, will create a mosaic of, of ways of being rather than a monoculture? And it's all about that match between the dispersal of that little miracle of the seed, but the seed has to find the right place. And there's all these amazing ways that plants have of doing that. And like you said, you have to find a space that is suitable, that you can adapt to, and where the signals turn on your germination process. Mm -hmm. They turn on your life force mm -hmm. so that you're no longer this safe little bundle of life contained in a dormant sense, but you're activated in some sense. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those signals that, that really activate different seeds? 
it's so interesting to think about this little speck, this little speck, right, that has the ability to know whether now is the time to germinate. One of my favorite examples of this comes from pin cherry, also known as fire cherry. Do you know that yes, plant? Yeah. I love pin cherry. Mm. Oh, they're mm. so tart and yeah. delicious, beautiful early successional mm -hmm. pioneer plant, right? And they just finished fruiting, and the birds have carried them all over the place, deposited the seeds in the soil, but they're not going to germinate. They're not going to germinate yet. They're waiting. They are waiting for the right time. And, and place. So how does a little cherry pit know when it's time? Well, they need full sun. They couldn't germinate under maples. You know, it's fine. That blue jade defecated them out under a maple. Well, they've got to wait because they can't live under a maple. They've got to wait. So what they are doing is while they're on the soil, while they're even buried in the soil, sort of dormant, they're kind of sleeping and waiting for their time, but they're watching. They are watching always to know when that little window for germination is. And in the case of pin cherries, what they're doing is they have a little, essentially a little spectrophotometer built into them so that they can read the wavelengths of light that are coming to this little <laughs> cherry pit. And you know, when, this, when the sun comes down through the canopy, the canopy, all those leaves of sugar maple, white pine, whatever, they're absorbing the red and the blue wavelengths. And so if that little seed is saying, oh, there's no red and blue, that must mean there's a canopy over me. It's not my moment. No go. But on the time when they wake up and say, red and blue wavelengths, that must mean the canopy's gone. There must have been a tree fall. There must have been a fire. There must have been a windstorm. Um, now is the time of pin cherries. And almost immediately, they'll germinate, send down that root, send up a, um, a, a shoot through the soil. It's amazing. And to think that this little tiny cherry pit has the ability to perceive the world and make decisions accordingly by reading wavelengths of light, um, it, it just, to me, is stunning. It's, it's beyond stunning. It's, it's magic. It, it, it appears to be magic. It does. It does. And you know, these, bil these beings that people dismiss as, 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 as inferior. It, right. Exactly. Primitive. Right. right, right. Just think if us humans had that level and capacity to know when to germinate and, and put our roots down right. and find a home. Right, exactly. Yeah, that kind of intimacy with the world, constantly reading the world, and, and the patience to wait for your moment. Um, say, when are the resources right for me? We'd waste a lot less energy, wouldn't oh we? My God. <laughs> the native seed pod pushing, is produced pushing, by the Cultural Conservancy with generous right support by Tamil Pius Trust. Right. To contribute right. to our polyculture right. and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org. In the soil, and of course, what they're waiting for is rain. And but they are not fooled by you know just a little rain. They know that in order to get their roots really started, it really needs to be wet. And so these are seeds that can read the amount of rainfall that's coming. If 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 
they, if they need two inches and it rains a half an inch, they're not fooled. They wait. There are all these chemical s signals that are present in the seed coat of those seeds and they need to be washed out and it takes two inches of rain to wash them out. Um, so they again have these remarkable ways of sensing their regeneration niche so that all that potential which is packed into that seed is realized and not not wasted. Not wasted. Yeah. There's so many ways to do it. I think about, you know, the beautiful paper birches that are around here that uh, need mineral soil. They have to have um, burnt over land or a landslide or something. They want to germinate in that beautiful golden sand that gets turned up. And, uh, but how do they find that golden sand? There's not a lot of it. It turns out that one of the things they're super good at is skittering over frozen ground. Up here in the Adirondacks it gets really crusty on the top of the snow and that's about the time that the birch seeds are let go and they skitter across that frozen um, surface and of course they end up going way farther than they would if they just landed in the soft duff. Um, so they wait until their transport medium <laughs> is is available. Incredible. Um, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. It's like they're ice skating across yeah, the ice surface. Skating. Yeah. To find a rocky, some minerals they can sink into. Yeah. You know, thinking of ice reminds me of, of, of what was called Indian potato. Um, An Indian potato. It's not a seed the way it it disperses. It is a little tuber, um, but it too has to get around because it get really crowded and they rely on ice. Um, they live around along riverbanks and floodplains and when the ice is um, going out in the spring, those big ice flows will scour the floodplain and it's like tilling. It's They're, <laughs> they're tilling up the soil and, and moving those potatoes downstream <laughs> to a place that the ice had just scraped. So it's open and fertile and there's nobody there. Um, Fresh soil to dive into. Right. So that's their regeneration niche. And every plant, every plant has its own strategy of, of mixing up genes, protecting them in this little seed coat and, and either with wings or Velcro or the courtesy of a, of a bird, get themselves where they need to be. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. In thinking about the incredible gifts that these seeds, you know, give us in terms of the wisdom that they have in reading the environment and the intelligences that they have, as you say, they can read light, they can read water, they measure it, they know when those conditions are right. Why do you think it is that humans have seem to have lost that ability to read the environment as clearly and to make home. And we even have this concept of diaspora, 
where communities are often forced to leave their homes out of you know war, famine, or political strife, or relocation, uh, colonialism, and uh, you know they have to seek out new soils, so to speak, and and where to find that place, and how to root down, and then how to germinate. It seems that we can learn some things from seeds um, for human settlement patterns and, and becoming native to place again. Mm -hmm. what, what can they teach humans about, especially diasporic communities who've been forced out of their homelands? Mm -hmm. Your own people were relocated several times and That's yet right. you found new homes. And, and, you know, Native people and all people are good place makers, mm -hmm. but to really find a place where you can dig deep roots, it takes a particular sensitivity. When I think particularly about the forced relocations as well as the migrations, let's say, of Anishinaabe peoples and, and in my case, Potawatomi peoples in particular, I have often marveled at that, to be removed from the Great Lakes to the plains. Um, how do you make a home again? And one of the things that I think the plants have to teach us is this notion of the generosity of the earth. That when we find ourselves transplanted, we are transplanted away perhaps from our knowledge systems, from our community, oftentimes from our, from our history, but that that fertile ground is there, that the water is there. It's a matter, I think, of, of trusting in abundance and, and finding it. Um, and to model ourselves after the plants and really listen to our places. That's, you know, to go back to the beginning of your question of why do we humans have such a hard time about this? I think it's because we think we're in control. That, that we, can, we can make a home out of cement and steel and sidewalks and pavement. We can make it. Um, and we do. And the footprint that we have on the earth as a result is, is as we know, huge and, and I think crushing is, is the right way to think about that. Whereas if we thought instead of, you know, how can I be at home here? How can I put down roots here? What is this soil like? Where is the water? How can I be in relationship with, with new neighbors? Um, you know, a lot of these plants in their dispersal and germination strategies, it isn't all about them. You know, they have to be in relationship. There has to be the right bird to carry them. You know, not every bird is for every berry. Um, there's this fine-tuning of relationship. Um, that soil is not right for me. It might be for you. It's that matter of matching, I think. Um, that That's that's something that we've lost by thinking that we're in charge, that we just change the place to suit us rather than change ourselves to suit the place. Mm. Mm. That's so, yeah, that's so apt, so right on in terms of being sensitive to the place. And we're not in control. Mm -hmm. We don't have um, 
that much power to modify our environment, even though we have, as you gave the example with cities and with clear cutting and with mining. I mean, we've had a huge imprint on the earth in terms of modifying it, but who wants to live there? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Who wants to live the places that humans have had the biggest impact? I mean, we can think of maybe some of our, you know, sacred places or medicine wheels or temples or uh, kivas, sacred places where humans have imbued the natural resonance of nature with our own creativity and symbolism and story uh, to make storyscapes or songscapes to make mm -hmm. places that are in harmony with the natural elements yes and i think that's what our indigenous architecture tried to do there's a reason that you have find adobe in new mexico and you find wigwams here mm -hmm. uh, because they were in tune with the materials of the land and they weren't extracting they were harmonizing with it right and learning from it and you learning know, when again i think of displaced people of learning from the land you know really listening to what that land tells you about how do you make a home here and to remember that the way i think about it in any way that home making is when we come into reciprocity with our places when we receive the gifts of that place you know the the river will give you a drink of water no matter where you're from. Um, those berries don't ask you for a passport before they feed you. Um, they're, they're welcoming. But that requires something of us. You know, as they give to us, we find a way that what are our gifts that we can give back to a place. Whether it's our ancestral homeland or not, we can, we can become native to those places once we enter into that gift exchange in a, in a reciprocal way. And I think about how did my Potawatomi ancestors endure the loss of Great Lakes homelands and make a home and flourish in, in, in Oklahoma. And the way I think about it is that the plants were welcoming to them. The plants took care of them. Um, and they knew that they would. So when they went to this new place, they learned from the others who were there, and they by forming relationship, mutual relationship, and the, the plants did take care of them, and they took care of the plants. And you do that, and it makes a home. Exactly, you build that relationship. Yeah. 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 Mm. And that relationship with place, as told by seeds, I think about those seeds that are buried in the soil, right beneath our feet or beneath all of our feet, as, as real story keepers. Because in the soil are the seeds of the ones who were here before, and interestingly, the ones that will be here. The soil is like where the seeds live, is, is both a repository of memory in the past, ecological and cultural memory, but it, it is also the imagination of the future, right in the soil. And, and seeds to me are powerful physical representatives of that, um, and good teachers for us in that regard as well. That we often hear about traditional knowledge being lost, and um, I think, no, it's, it's not lost. We may have forgotten 
and have been made to forget because of the engines of assimilation and colonization and diaspora and all of those things. But, but our stories, our memory, the knowledge that the plants and animals and mountains and lakes have to teach us is all resident like this dormant seed bank. And so like those pin cherry, fire cherry seeds, we have to think, what are the ways that it wakes up? Um, what, are, what are the ways that we wake up and, and aid in that, that germination? But I think it's all there. It's all there, the, the past and the future, right underneath our feet. And, and, and that's our job, is to, is to listen to it and wake it up. Yes, as it wakes us up. Yes. By putting our hands in that soil and digging deep and finding a new seed or an old seed and all the little critters that nurture them. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, it's true. So many people in the language revitalization movement, you know, that really transformed that old anthropological narrative that we've lost our language, we've lost our knowledge. They said, no, we didn't lose it. It lost us. Mm, yes. It lost us, yes, right? Yes. Anton Troyer, one of our Anishinaabe language teachers, mm. and Vincent Medina, a beautiful young Ohlone man in the San Francisco Bay Area in Oakland. He talks about, you know, we have to just remember that language. And we often use the soil metaphor that our languages are just waiting for us, like the seeds under the ground, mm -hmm. to be activated again. Mm -hmm. And the conditions seem to be right again. The signals are happening, right? I agree. I feel like we are in the midst of a collective remembering. And uh, those stories, those story seeds, the language, our ways, the, you know, the people are really starving, I think, for, for right relationship, for a sense of belonging in this beautiful, this beautiful world um, to belong here and to, to know that we're doing right by those who are doing right for us. To be in reciprocity with the living world creates that kind of sense of justice. You know, people often say that about seeds, that seeds carry justice. And I think that is one of their teachings of, of how do we come to just relationship with the world the way berries and birds do it, of, of a gift exchange. I'm glad you keep emphasizing, you know, the generosity of the seeds, especially in terms of the reciprocity, because it's, you know, unfortunate that so many words have can be misinterpreted or simplified, and lately I've been noticing that some people are even using reciprocity in terms of almost like capitalism give and take, you know, you know, I buy and you sell and, you know, it's an, this kind of exchange and it's such a crass, really, uh, desecration of a sacred cyclical process of give and be given, um, of receiving, of generosity, of giving without even expectations of return, like the berries, the abundance that they give, just buckets full and mouthfuls full and purple hands full and um, knowing they'll be dispersed, but without that expectation. But the way economics and capitalism has become about extraction versus generosity. 
is something that uh, our culture is in deep need of remembering. It reminds me that of that beautiful word in our language, the minidawag, a word for the giveaway, where just as you say, there's no expectation of, of return. And that word, the minidawag, I'm told, actually means they give from the heart. And so it's a sacred giving. And, and a thing which is sacred can never be bought and sold. It's never currency. It is the intrinsic act which matters. It is the relationship that's woven by that exchange. Um, the kind of reciprocity I'm talking about is the reciprocity we have that mutually sustains each other's lives, you know, and I think about the fact that we're sitting under these sighing white pines and that the words that we're speaking and the CO2 that is coming from our breath is becoming, it is at this moment entering those shining needles, it's becoming white pine and the oxygen that they are making in this beautiful sunshine, you know, we're taking in. That's what I mean by reciprocity, the making of each other, the making of each other. The making of each other, yeah. The co-creation. Yes, yeah. Co-creation. Yeah. Because ultimately, we aren't separate anyway. Right. <laughs> and what a joy to know that. To and know to that. Remember yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. We are all part of one another. The little seeds of the orchid that grows under these pines that won't germinate unless a particular fungus has latched itself onto that seed um, and that fungus only lives under the pines which is the right place for that orchid to grow you know this idea that that any of us are separate mm-hmm. is 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 um, a fiction it is a fiction of of western individualism um, and and you know that idea that some people well, I, I I don't want to lose my individuality um, no but you want to I think at heart our deepest longing is to belong, um, and we do, we've just forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. It seems almost like um, such a great poetic balance of, you know, belonging and kinship, knowing we are part of something greater than ourselves um, through that web of kin, and yet also there's a recognition of rather than individualism as separateness, um, as the sovereignty of beings that yes. you write about so beautifully yes. with forest ecology, that each tree has a sovereignty of its own being and yet it's completely dependent and co-creating with these other beings, the little ants, the other seeds, the flowers, the birds. So how do you... Um, modulate that creative uh, balance of the sovereignty of beingness and the collective kinship? Mm, What a wonderful question. Um, I actually have been thinking about this in terms of the identity and personhood of all 
beings. And that is that this notion of, of sovereignty, of being, you really must be fully yourself in order to participate in the whole. Um, if you, if that fungus was trying to be a different fungus, if that pine was saying, well, I want to be more like a spruce, no, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. You have to be solid in your identity and, and be fully that pine in order for the symbiosis to work. I think of great teachers of that in Three Sisters Gardening. Um, why does the whole work? Because corn is distinctively corn. Corn brings her gifts, and if corn was other than that, it wouldn't work. The beans don't try to be the corn. The corn doesn't try to be the squash. The whole works because of the sovereignty of each being. So it is both an invitation to be fully oneself, knowing that the whole would suffer if you aren't fully yourself. And I see the forest teaching us that, and, and it's something that I really try to remember, that we have to be fully ourselves, or else the rest of the uh, co-creative process um, doesn't have our gift. That's right. It's thwarted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's limited. Yeah. yeah, that's so beautiful, Robin. What a, a gorgeous way to say it. Mm. And speaking of the sovereignty of beings and the rights of beings, I know you've been following and contributing to the rights of nature movement. And there's a, a growing movement of gatherings and legal precedents, and constitutional changes, and most importantly, I think to me and probably it was a, a worldview change that trees have sovereignty, the rights of nature, the rights of Mother Earth, a Pachamama that was instituted and you know codified in Bolivia and Ecuador and in New Zealand, the rights of the rivers, the Fonganui River, the Waikato River, they have their own sovereign identity and rights to govern themselves also with their natural and original first guardians the first peoples who were co-creating with them since creation time. Mm -hmm. So this rights of nature movement is really building momentum. There's going to be an international gathering next month in September in uh, Ecuador. Um, and how do you see this rights of nature movement unfolding and some of the promise or excitement of it? Mm. I am so excited about it because to me it's this brand new system well, maybe not brand new, right? Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Let's say an emerging, a, a part of that collective remembering. Yes. Um, to to um, recognize the personhood of all of our relatives who are around us, our more than human relatives, and um, to recognize their um, their right to be. It seems almost counterintuitive that we have to recognize their right to be. It is an inherent <laughs> <No>. right. <laughs> who are we? Who are we to do the recognizing? Exactly. <laughs> Except for we are the ones who have done the compromising. So mm -hmm. so it, it is... The forgetting. The forgetting. Um, the forgetting. So it is incumbent upon us as... as, as uh, as, as, as law-making people to, to return to the, to, to align our, our 
human legal systems with the laws of nature, um, which do recognize the beinghood of 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 of, of all of our of our relatives um, and their rights to exist. I think the recognition of legal personhood can not only perhaps be a really important tool for achieving ecological justice and justice for native people as caring for that for that landscape but it's a powerful opening for us to again learn the lessons of these of these persons because in a sense the rights of nature movement um, necessarily follows from this idea that in the Western Hemisphere anyway, that what does it mean to be a person? In indigenous ways of thinking, we'd say it's because you're a sovereign being, you have your own ways, you have your own wisdom, you have your own right to be. But in the Western world, what does it mean to be a person? A person, a legal person, is one who can take you to court. Um, so this it's a fiction, again, but it's a fiction that dominates our, our trade, our jurisprudence, our political and social systems. Um, and if that's what it takes to make the change, um, I think that's an important way. But, I, but I'm really excited about the worldview change that comes with it to say, what could we learn? What could we learn from these persons who are around us? And how could we use their rights to uh, safeguard the rights of all? Mm. I think about the... The Ho-Chunk Nation recently amended their tribal constitution to reflect rights of nature. And they did that in order to protect their ceded territories from frac sand mining because the laws of the state of Wisconsin were inadequate to do so. And so they declared that the land itself has rights and used that successfully to protect themselves. Um, and those kinds of actions not only protect the people, but they protect the river. They protect the, 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 the sand itself, the substance of Mother Earth and all the beings who live there. So it's very exciting to me to see the way that these new systems of jurisprudence can be of, of benefit to all of us. In much the same way that we see that, that treaty rights can be used to benefit all of us, that in the Pacific Northwest, for example, that treaty rights have been the foundation of caring for rivers and caring for salmon and for um, non-native communities as well. When we, when we recognize the rights to be whole and healthy and to fulfill the responsibilities given in what we call our original instructions, then everybody benefits, all life benefits. And that's my hope for the Rights of Nature movement is, as well. Absolutely. It seems to be really getting back to the original instructions in a more um, concrete way for modern society to really recognize the sovereignty of, of the beings, the non-human beings who um, have, in a way, more of a right to be here than we do in yeah. so many ways, and yet have been so abused and exploited and forgotten that it's a rebalancing. Right. A very important rebalancing. To live in a world where corporations are regarded as persons, but white pines and strawberries are not, is um, 
is certainly a situation that needs redress, huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Some remedying. Yeah. Wow. Well, Robin, thank you for so much, so much wisdom and, and beauty with your um, botanical, poetic language. It's just so luscious. And the gift of your braiding sweetgrass and gathering moss, your books have been such a contribution to humanity and to um, the fields of science and uh, Native American studies and really helping people remember to remember as you say so well and and your work really embodies so beautifully if i can ask one last question um you have been one of the biggest proponents and authors and teachers uh, of the field of biocultural restoration or ecocultural restoration and in fact you've created the first ever graduate program master's program at SUNY Syracuse with your Center for the Study of Native Peoples and the Environment which is also a model program in a mainstream university this concept of biocultural or ecocultural restoration I think still eludes many people if you could just give you know a simple definition even though I know it's a very complex term and concept but what does it really mean and why is it important today in the field of restoration ecology which is to me a field of healing right it's to say that our footprint on the earth has been so heavy we can see those footprints right across the landscape in in poisoned Huge landscapes and oh. deforestation we can all name mm -hmm. the wounds mm -hmm. and so restoration ecology is is very much the science of healing those wounds but and and I'm I'm such an admirer of that of that whole school of, of, of ecological sciences. But there's a way in which it's been limited in that restoration ecology still tends to think about the humans as controlling the system that we can go in and fix it. And you know, we do have lots of tools by which we can help um, but what we're really doing I think is supporting the natural processes of healing that using the land's own wisdom to do that coupled with our remarkable gifts for technology and planting and and so forth but what ecological restoration has missed is that it's not just the land that's broken it's our relationship to land that's been broken um, that allows us to make these footprints all across the landscape. And so that we must invest as much effort in healing our relationship to place as we do in healing places. And so what I think about as in, encompassed in that biocultural restoration is how do we once again restore those bonds of affection and respect for a place? How do we um, uh, remember and, and help regenerate those bonds of reciprocity? That land takes care of us so that the plants that we are helping grow back on land should include those plants that are part of a cultural landscape, that are part of feeding people. Because when the land takes care of you, you take care of the land. To me, that's biocultural restoration. I think of it honestly as reciprocal 
restoration. So that as we heal the land, we also heal ourselves. When we use traditional ecological knowledge to heal the land, we're also, again, sort of reweaving those, those bonds between people and place. That in a biocultural restoration, we're listening to that place again, embracing that place as, as, as teacher, as, as home. It's, it's not just a habitat, mm-hmm. it's our home. So in a way, the simplest way to think about biocultural restoration is homemaking. Mm-hmm. How do we make a home mm-hmm. that we love and that can love us back for the work that we are doing there? Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. That's what we hope for. Plant those seeds. (laughs) Plant those seeds, exactly. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And is there anything for our listeners that you would like to share? Uh, Anything else about um, seeds or plants, given the theme of Native Seed Pod? And our byline is, we're an antidote to the monoculture. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Well, that actually is a great framing for, I think the thing that I would like to say is to remember that that there is a, a very strong way in which we are seeds, right? We are seeds for the future, and it depends, again, on our being strongly ourselves, on that solid identity to say, what are my gifts and how will I give them in the world? And then we enter into that that state of reciprocity that is so happy for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been wonderful to sit under these beautiful pines by this lake shore and think about seeds mm-hmm. and you my friend Aww. are a seed which is blooming <laughs> and so thank you thank you so much yeah. what a joy yeah. Ginagi kendam nagi kendam awat kada narama dame nijishpe kabuin kada narama harame. We gotta humble ourselves in the eyes of the medicines. We gotta bend down low, we gotta humble ourselves in the eyes of the medicines. We gotta know what they know. We can raise each other up higher and higher. We can raise each other up.